Continuing on our topic of the teaching, some of the teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta, going into the refrain, actually more springboarding off of the refrain for reflection this evening. The sentence in the refrain that I'd like to springboard from is one that Gil really touched on this morning in a way, mentioned last night and elaborated on a little bit more this morning. Actually, I think I'll read you the whole refrain right now and then I'll tell you which sentence I'm springboarding from. So this translation I'm reading is from Bhikkhu Analio. In this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, or abides contemplating the body externally, or abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body, or abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body, or abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. The sentence I'd like to reflect on a little more is this one about the simplicity. Mindfulness that there is a body or there is feeling, there are mind states, there is mind, I think that's the way it's offered. Mindfulness that there is a mind, mindfulness that there is phenomena for the four foundations is established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. The continuous mindfulness here is pointing to the, uh, or is the phrase, patisati, the guilt spoke about and has been translating as lucid mindfulness, clear awareness. Here, Bhikkhu Analyo translates it as continuous mindfulness. Mindfulness that there is a body is simply established to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and clear awareness. Kind of a mixture of translations there. This is pointing to, as Gil was saying both yesterday and this morning to an awareness that is meeting experience without 
filters the clear awareness, clarity of mindfulness, not interpreting or judging or having an agenda or not experiencing through an interpretation or a judgment or an agenda. So the awareness is clear. It, 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 uh, it's not distorting the experience. That's a way I like to think about what this clear awareness is. It's a non-distorted awareness, undistorted awareness, transparent So this phrase, to me, kind of connects to or springboards me into another teaching offered by the Buddha that may be an alternative kind of instruction or exploration of what it means to have this bare, clear awareness, kind of training to to do that. Now, the Satipatthana Sutta is a training to establish this kind of, of mindfulness. And yet there's another teaching that's offered in the suttas. It's a, it's a brief teaching. Many of you have probably heard of it, the teachings to Bahia, where Bahia came to the Buddha having traveled a long way and wanted to hear what the Buddha had to offer. And he was, he was, in, he was kind of a little bit in a hurry. He, uh, he arrived to where the Buddha lived and the Buddha wasn't there. He, the Buddha was out for alms round. So Bahia followed after him, looking for him. He didn't want to wait for the Buddha to come back. He had followed after him and found the Buddha and said, will you teach me the Dharma in brief? Will you teach me the Dharma? And uh, the Buddha said, you know, now's not the time, Bahia. I'm going for lunch, basically. And Bahia was so on fire, you know, with this spiritual urgency that he asked the Buddha again. And he said, we don't know how long you will live. We don't know how long I will live. Please give me the teachings in brief. And the Buddha again said, now's not the time I'm having, going for my alms round. And he asked him a third time. And uh, many, many places in the suttas, when you ask the Buddha something three times, he'll consent. So he consented, he stopped, and he offered Bahia a teaching. He says, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. I'm going to read just a piece of this right now. You should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, there will be only the herd. In reference to the sensed, 
there will be only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, there will be only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. And he goes on, but um, I'm going to stop there and just consider this part of the teaching. How do we train ourselves? You know, what is this training? What does it mean? This, uh, it evokes in a way what we've been saying about the simplicity. Just know the body as a body, just know seeing as seeing. In the seen is only the seen, in the heard is only the heard. So these four words, seen, heard, sensed, cognized, are a kind of, in a way, I understand um, as a shorthand for the six sense bases, the five physical senses, plus the sense base of the mind. So the seen, heard, and sensed It says in the commentaries that sensed refers to smelling, tasting, and touching. So those seen, heard, and sensed are the five physical senses. And then cognized is the mind, what the mind does. And the instructions or the encouragement are to to kind of notice the simplicity of each of these aspects of experience. This teaching is not very elaborated here for Bahia. Bahia did offer the, uh, ask for the teachings in brief, and that's what he got. So what might they mean? In the scene is only the scene. You know, seeing, when we, when we see, when we hear, smell, taste, touch, Often, it's not as simple as the sight or the sound or the smell. There's a lot that goes on in our system, in our minds, mostly in our minds, in relationship to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and also in relationship to things that go on in our mind. So we see something and we, you know, we feel it. There's, there's processes, there's these processes at work in our human system, processes of body, processes of mind, and these processes connect, they interweave. Now, normally we're not so aware of how the body and mind kind of play together when we see something or hear something. We're not so conscious of all the different processes that come into play. We just think of it as seeing. And so it's useful, it's, it's um, the Buddha um, in the teachings of the Satipatthana Sutta is encouraging us in the first three foundations 
encouraging us, first of all, to get to know the body, feelings, and mind states. So kind of to begin to distinguish body from mind. So the, uh, the experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, wrecking some, recognizing something happening in the mind, there's a lot that goes on there. And just as some examples, I mean, you're, you're kind of actually all very familiar with this. Connected with a sight, for instance, we might have Let's start from the most obvious kinds of experiences and then work to the subtler ones. We see something and we, you know, we find we have a, a, of a response to it. It might be as simple as we like it or we don't like it. Or it might be more of, a, of an emotional response. We see somebody doing something and we feel threatened or we feel excited or interested. So there's the seeing, and then there's the response to it, the kind of the mental, emotional kind of terrain that happens in response to to seeing. So this is a big part of what we've been talking about and exploring here, beginning to, to recognize the difference between a sense impression and what's happening our mind in response to it, the, the relationship to it, or just the follow-on from it. So we, we can begin to notice that distinction. The seeing and the emotional response are different things. And we can imagine or reflect on perhaps that the, uh, the emotional response that we have is different depending on different conditions. And we see, we see this, I think, we, we know this at times, that, yeah, if I wasn't so annoyed at that other person, I would have a very different response to this situation. So we kind of see how we, our responses to things are shaped by prior conditions. So this, uh, this kind of beginning to separate out a, the experience, the sense impression from an emotional kind of response. So the emotional responses are often the the more obvious kind of mental response to the sense impressions. At a subtler level, it might be just the simplicity of liking or not liking, or the recognition at an even subtler level of the experience is pleasant or unpleasant. That second foundation, no, knowing or recognizing, well, there's this seeing of something, seeing this person doing this thing. And there's a sense of unpleasantness. There's, that's actually a pretty complicated process because the, the unpleasantness in that as we start to, to look at it, so this we really start to see how body and mind are intertwined, the process of seeing intertwined with the mental activity. We see something and we form an idea about what the person is doing. 
And often, especially in the realm of seeing, um, the seeing itself, you know, seeing is just form and color. You know, the light comes into our eyes and hits the back of our retina and it's, you know, shape and it's color. And then our minds turn it into an experience. It recognizes it. So this is the perception that Gil was talking about yesterday, the, the painting of an idea onto the experience. And so there's that, that process that comes into play. We see somebody, the first thing we do is we recognize perhaps who it is and we um, form an idea about what they're doing. And it is the idea about what they're doing and our relationship, a whole perhaps host of history of our relationship to that idea that is pleasant or unpleasant. It's probably not actually the actual sight. This is a really interesting place to explore. So this is, this is the training, kind of, the, 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 Buddha, the Buddha says, you know, train in the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. One way to train to that direction, we can't, we can't just flip a switch and say, okay, I'm not going to have any interference. Mindfulness is going to be completely clear and lucid. It's, it's, we, we can't do that. But what we can start to notice is where the mindfulness gets a little muddled, where there's something interfering, where there are processes involved that kind of take that clarity away. And so this is, this is a way to begin to explore this training, to get familiar with the difference between what is the seeing and what is all the mental processes at play there? What are all the mental processes at play as we go through the simple living of our day? So we, um, we see something and uh, perceive it, recognize it, have ideas about it, feelings about it. And the the um, the practice is to be curious about what are all of the pieces that come into play when seeing is happening, when hearing is happening. Begin to get curious about what is seeing and what is all the mental stuff supporting it. So we we might begin to Recognize that as we see somebody doing something, have a sense of, oh, I don't like that, that there's a lot going on in the mind behind that. Now, this kind of exploration of these mental processes at play with the, the sense bases is, uh, it's not something we try to look for so much. But as mindfulness gets a little stronger, we might start to be able to see and the see the well, there's seeing, and then there's this idea 
of what I've seen and all of these views and beliefs and thoughts about what I've seen. And that's actually what I don't like. I don't like the ideas. I played with this at one point um, on a retreat. I was uh, noticing a lot of aversion in doing walking meditation. It was um, an evening walking period and pre-COVID we were all squeezed into a (laughs) small walking hall and somebody entered into the walking room and kind of squeezed in next to me. And as soon as that person squeezed in next to me, it's like everybody kind of adjusted. There was enough room for that person, but the aversion just flared up. So I started getting curious about this. You know what? What's going on here? I began exploring the senses. What is seen? What was seen was a person walking and... um, I was looking, I was curious actually about where was the mind actually reacting? What what was unpleasant about the experience that it was averse to it? So I started looking at the various sense bases. Oh, there's seeing happening and the person was just kind of walking normally. The person didn't look unpleasant. And so it's like, well, that's not what the reaction's to. It's not the seeing they weren't making any noise, not the hearing. They weren't touching me, not the touching. They didn't have an odor. I went through all the physical senses. Not not there. It's like, huh, that's interesting. And, and I knew, it's like, there must be something going on in the mind, but I, I didn't see it. I, I didn't know what it was yet. So I just kept, stu- you know, kept walking and looking at this experience of, the aversion that was here with this person. And uh, at some point, as I was just walking back and forth, I, I, said, I said to myself, there must be some thought in there. And uh, I didn't particularly see any thoughts about the person at that point. But as I kept walking, a couple passes back and forth, at one point, as I turned around, I saw this thought, they're weird. <laughs> and... Like, there's a thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I still didn't quite get it, you know, but after a little bit further on, the justification for their weird came up in my mind, you know. Why did the mind think they were weird? And uh, the thought that burst into my mind was, it's freezing cold outside and they're in bare feet. And at that moment, the mind just kind of laughed, you know, it's just like, well, that's that's a kind of silly thing. I mean, I could see that there was a reaction to the feeling of the person being weird, that, that there was a kind of a, a tension or a tightness. But as soon as I saw this like, justification in the mind of, oh, they're weird because they've got bare feet and it's cold outside, it was like the whole thing fell apart. The judgment fell apart. The, the feeling of them being weird went away. And I was just walking, and actually what happened in that moment was that the, the heart opened and just was wishing that person really well. So it transformed from aversion to metta. This process was just, I wasn't 
I did look through each of the sun spaces, you know, kind of curious about, well, what's going on in the, in the body? What's going on in seeing and hearing? So I checked each sun space. And, and then, but it wasn't like I was digging to find things out. It's like, there must be something there. Let's just see. So it's just being available for it to appear, to show up. And it appeared. And the, the willingness to see it, to be with it, to know it, led to a, a, a release of it. So this kind of process of, of how body and mind interact, in this case, the, the seeing, um, I thought it was the seeing at first, but what it actually was, what the reactivity actually came from, was a thought in the mind. And it was a little bit humbling. It's like, wow, what's going on is I don't like this thought in my mind. That's what actually the, the mind is reacting to. So this kind of curiosity about what's actually being seen, heard, sensed, cognized, what's actually going on in the sense world, and what's going on in our minds, it's really humbling to see this and very valuable, (laughs) really valuable to see this. So the the processes of body, of mind, there's there's whole teachings on the different processes of body and mind. I'll just, I've named them a little bit here informally. So the body, and then in relationship to the body with each experience, this is how they come together. So every time we experience a sight, there's a feeling that comes with that. We, we experience that sight as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So that's one of the mental processes. Feeling is understood to be a mental process here. So there's the feeling of it. And then there's the recognition, the perception, knowing what that sight is or that sound or that smell. So another mental process at work, very connected to the sense-based process. I mean, we're not going to be able to navigate our world without these processes. They're not a problem, per se. They confuse us. We misinterpret what they are. We take our perceptions and our beliefs and our views based on our conditioning to be what's actually out there. But it's kind of more of a reflection of what's out there. It's more... um, It's a reflection that is distorted by our past conditioning. And so this is where the, the notion of clear awareness is, is interesting, that the, the clear awareness does not distort experience. So our processes of mind, the sight, There's the feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and the recognition. That's a a sound, 
we, we feel the, hear the vibration, the pitch and tone. And, and then the mind, like, recognizes it. Right now I'm hearing this kind of subtle rumble coming from the windows outside. The mind is interpreting that as Route 17 traffic noise. I don't know that's what it is, <laughs> but that's its kind of perception at this moment. So there's the perception of the experience, the feeling, the perception. And then often there is this mental relationship to that. I don't particularly have a emotional response to Route 17 noise, but... Sometimes, as I've been meditating in various locations, at IMS, for instance, hearing the sounds on Pleasant Street, sometimes there's a really loud car or motorcycle that'll go down the street, and there's a reaction to that. There's that kind of emotional response. So that's another mental process at work. And then there's just a simple, bare kind of recognition of knowing. Knowing experience, another mental process. So these four mental processes that are described in a teaching on the five aggregates, which talks about the body plus these four, feeling, perception, mental, mental formation, activity of, of mind, and knowing. Um, these five processes kind of come together weave together to help us navigate our world. They, and we couldn't get, get, get by without the perception and possibly even without some of our responses. Like that, I think to uh, those emotional responses have evolved in a way to keep us alive not always skillfully, but um, they are a part of our human nature, our human system. So with this um, kind of exploration of these processes of body, of mind, we begin to understand that so much of what we're experiencing, everything of what we're experiencing actually, it's not actually, we're not actually experiencing what's out there we're experiencing a reflection of it that is informed by, shaped by our conditioning, our uh, history, our views of the moment, whether we're hungry or not right now. There's so many things that are shaping what's happening in this moment. And the... um, The difficulty or the, 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 the problem with the way our minds kind of work, or not so much problem, but why we get caught in suffering. It's problem or no problem. It, it's just the nature of our minds that when we're caught by these processes and don't understand them, we tend to suffer. So this is what the Buddha is pointing at. If you understand 
if you can understand the processes as processes, begin to see, here's the seeing, and here's what's going on in the mind. Understand them as kind of an interweaving of process. <coughs> there is, it, it begins to help the mind to not um, believe its construction. So that kind of reflection that I was talking about, we, we know something in the world and it gets filtered through our mind, our ideas, our views. So it's a construction or a fabrication in our mind that we're actually meeting. That's what we meet in our, in our experience. It's kind of humbling to, to know that. We're not actually receiving the world. We're receiving our interpretation of it. And so if we can uh, begin to recognize that as an interpretation, not take it to be truth, not take it to be what's actually out there, not take it to be reality. So much freedom comes from that. There's a teaching in uh, the suttas that kind of talks about these interweaving of the sense processes and the mental processes. And to point back to the Bihiya Sutta, what I think the Bihiya Sutta is really pointing to is, so yeah, notice the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the tasting, the touching, the, se- the seen, the heard, the sensed. And notice the cognized. Know they're separate. Know they are both processes. We don't have to stop those mental processes, but we need to understand them for what they are. And that's what we typically forget. We take them to be reality. We take them to be what's actually happening in the world. So the this teaching that kind of talks about the interweaving of the sense base and the mental processes also talks about how that the mental process gets confused. This is in a sutta called the Honeyball Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's Majjhima 18. And partway through that sutta, there's an elaboration on a teaching the Buddha has offered by one of his monks. And he goes, he, he says, he, he describes this basically, here's how the process of our mind works. Here's how it usually works. Dependent on the eye and forms, so the eye and light rays, the the light rays coming from the forms out there, dependent on the eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. There's that knowing. There's sight. The meeting of the three is contact. There's the kind of the impression, the sense impression we get. There's the sight. It's impinging on our sense base. We know it is there. 
The meeting of the three is contact. With contact is conditioned, there is feeling. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. What one feels, that one perceives. So we recognize it. There's a sight, impinges on our eye, the, the light rays impinge on our eye, and we kind of the feeling there, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and the recognition. In various places it's said these come together. You know, just like there's, for instance, the sight of the light over there. And it, it's, there's kind of both the, the feeling of the pleasant, unpleasant, in this case, pretty neutral, you know, the seeing of a light, neutral, but the recognition of it as light. That's this process. So this is all pretty normal and useful so far. Sense impression, feeling, recognizing it. Then it goes on. What one perceives, that one thinks about. So we start to think about it. And maybe it's, it's you know, just basically the kind of, at the beginning, it's just the, oh, there's a light and that's a useful thing. You know, it's, uh, it's helping to see the room. I need lots of light so I can see the, the notes. So there's that, there's that kind of little thinking about it, perhaps. Or we hear something. You know, this, this happens a lot in meditation, actually, this kind of phenomena. So there's a sound outside, a sound of, there's been some hammering outside lately. So, you know, oh, there's hammering. And, you know, so first there's just the recognition. Oh, there's, there's the sound. And then we may start thinking about it. I wonder who's doing that hammering. You know, at first it might not be terribly charged, but, uh, you know, it's just kind of like a little bit of thinking about it. wonder who's doing that hammering, what are they doing? The next step of this is where it begins to get a little more tangled up. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. So this could be a kind of a spreading of thinking. Don't they know there's a meditation center here? <laughs> Don't they know we just started doing retreats again? I mean, what are they doing over there anyway that they have to be hammering at this hour? So there, you even hear in the tone of my voice, there's already some, you know, reactivity involved. This is kind of the, the place we begin to uh, get tangled up. We get tangled up with our views and our ideas and our reactivity. And often at this point, we are not recognizing, oh yeah, there's a, there's a version happening. We're already in the world of that aversion, believing that aversion, believing that... They shouldn't be doing that at that point. So this happens a lot to us. This kind of process happens a lot. And actually, it's a very interesting, potentially interesting thing to explore um, around where and how the mindfulness gets lost 
because I'd say very often, quite often actually, that the um, the place where the mind will wander out of the present moment and start to get involved in all of these things is when we don't clearly recognize that we've recognized something. So there's a sound that happens and the sound of the hammering and, you know, there's kind of the hammering, but we didn't really clearly recognize the attention got pulled to the hammering. We're already thinking about they shouldn't be doing that. So there's been a perception that wasn't recognized. This is one of the main ways the mind wanders. There's something that that goes on, a sound, a sight, a smell. We smell it and there's a recognition of it, like, you know, the smell of the curry this morning. They're just, oh, there's curry. Oh, I wonder what kind of curry it is. And we're off, right? We're off into thinking about lunch and envisioning what kind of curry it is on the table. So this is, uh, this is a prime place where the mind will wander and, and lose mindfulness. It's this shift from perception to thinking to all of the ideas and proliferation around it. But then it doesn't just stop there, this teaching. The elaboration on the teaching says, with what one has mentally proliferated as the source... Perceptions and notions related to mental proliferation beset one with respect to past, future, and present forms cognizable through the eye. That sounds a little complicated. The language is a little complicated, but I think what it means is that these ideas we have when we have some kind of a proliferation, it, it, it it begins to cement in our minds our views and our ideas. And we start relating to experience through those views and ideas. So for example, this is a way essentially that history comes into play our history, our conditioning comes into play in the present moment. That's what I interpret this as, as pointing to. That the perception that we have, so what we're noticing in the present moment, it's not just like our eyes or a camera taking in things in a really neutral way. It's already influenced or informed by all of our conditioning, all of our past ideas, past perceptions. So an example potentially of of something like this. So we see somebody across the road, you know, and just seeing a person, not somebody we know, perhaps, that may be a pretty neutral experience just to see somebody walking down the road. But if you have a particular conditioning in your past, Maybe this person walking down the road has a a way of walking that reminds you of somebody from your past. So there's an association. Reminds you of somebody from your past. And the connections and associations with that person from your past are ones of fear, 
the person had been really mean to you. Your relationship with seeing this person you don't know walking down the street may be instantly, oh, I don't like that person. I don't, I don't want anything to do with that person. Without really being conscious of the thoughts or the past history coming into that. We just get this intuitive feeling. You know, we sometimes call that intuition. That person's not safe. And we don't really see that it's been our past or our history that has influenced this perception. One scholar puts it this way about how this process plays. And he uses the word distorted perception for this uh, mental proliferation. The Pali is papancha. Different translations for this. uh, Mental proliferation. Tanisaro Bhikkhu calls it objectifying where we kind of create the idea of something. This scholar calls it distorted perception. So he says, this is Professor Pali Havadana, the process of distorted perception, of placing every bare perception onto a framework of emotions and beliefs that have come out of our past, our history, our conditioning, robs the freshness out of our experience. But we are not aware of this constant interference of the past. Because of this unawareness, which is our ignorance or our delusion, we see humanity fragmented as me and others, us and them, and in various other stereotypes, skin color, ethnicity, language, and ideology included. So this process that that we're talking about, it's not just about, you know looking at stuff going on in our minds. It's about the vast suffering of the world, how that comes to be. This is part of the importance of understanding it in our minds, how these processes work. So this description of the distorted perception is essentially not in the seen is only the seen, in the heard is only the heard, in the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. It's believing those views and ideas and perceptions to be reality. This is me. I, we do things right. That They do not do things right. You know, that kind of us and them, that kind of breaking ourselves into factions and beliefs in there. So the, coming back to the Bahiya Sutta, in the scene is only the scene, in the herd is, in reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. The training, you know, it might be possible to at times kind of hear those teachings and and just like get a taste or a moment or a sense of, oh, for a moment as I hear that, the sense of extra falls away. Some of you had that experience in, in the guided meditation this morning, I think. 
sense of just nothing extra is necessary and it just falls away but much of the time we have to do the duller work of actually kind of noticing what is actually in the way Oh, what are these ideas and thoughts and views? But that noticing, that very noticing, begins to help the mind to understand how they are processes. It's not, it's not that we have to say, in the cognized is, is only the cognized. We stop the cognizing. We stop the feeling, the perception, the mental formations. But when we can recognize them as cognized, as mental processes, we're approaching or heading in the direction of understanding in the cognized is only the cognized. Knowing, perception, and recognition, oh, that's happening in the mind. That recognition of, oh, that person's weird. Oh, that's happening in this mind. That's an idea happening in this mind. So powerful to see the difference or to to kind of notice that something just being formed in this mind is not an inherent reality. It is just a thought. There's a vast difference there. And the seeing of that begins to help us to land in that place with oh this is a this is a thought this is a cognition this is just a thought so we can move in the direction of in the scene is only the scene by being curious about mental processes physical processes opening to how we are in relationship to experience, all of the teachings that we've been encouraging begin to point us in this direction. And the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. The teaching goes on to be here. The Buddha says, when for you there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. When that is the case, when that is your when that is how your mind is meeting experience, the Buddha says, then Bahia, there is no you in terms of that pointing to this uh, kind of sense of self as being kind of fundamentally tied up with this whole process of distortion, of distorted perception. There is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. the sense of I, me. Another cognition, another construction of the mind. It arises in dependence on 
history, conditioning, often arises in dependence on certain different flavors of I, me, my, mine may arise in dependence on certain uh, relationships. I know for myself, the identity or the sense of me as a daughter arises when I go home to visit my parents. Different sense of identity here, sitting in front of the room. Different, different experience. So the the teachings here, when there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This is the end of suffering. What I find interesting here is this teaching doesn't start from trying to teach Bahia about what self and not self is. It just says, you know, look at your experience from this perspective. See if you can tease apart the body and mind. <laughs> you know. Look at the processes of mind. Look at the process of body. Notice the difference between them. And that begins to point out this the way that the sense of self is just another construction in the mind. Now we don't have to go looking for not-self or try to figure out what is this me. The Buddha points to just notice the seen, notice the heard, notice the sensed, notice the cognized. When that's the case for you, when in the scene is only the scene, when that's the case, there is no you in terms of that. The mind lets go of clinging, the mind lets go of its identities and suffering releases. As I was thinking about this teaching of Bahia, I went in to check in with Gil and said, is there any other place this is in the suttas? And we found one place, one other place this particular teaching is. Just two places in all of the texts. But the one that we found has a nice little poem at the end of the teaching that the uh, the person, after he's heard the teaching from the Buddha, now when Bahia heard this teaching, what happened for Bahia was he became enlightened. He he it, it was he was ready for this teaching, and he he woke up and sadly, he died within hours. But uh, I, I think that's an interesting kind of counterpoint to the beginning where he's saying to the Buddha, we don't know how long you're going to live or I'm going to live. It kind of brings that spiritual urgency. You know, practice while you can. In this story that 
we found. The person the Buddha gave the teachings to kind of checked his understanding out afterwards. He said, here's what I understand that you said. And so he kind of rephrased the teaching in his own words. So here's what he, he said. Having seen a form with mindfulness muddled, attending to the pleasing sign, one experiences it with infatuated mind and remains tightly holding to it. Many feelings flourish within, originating from the visible form, covetousness and annoyance as well, by which one's mind becomes disturbed. For one who accumulates Suffering thus, Nibbana is said to be far away. And then he repeats it with respect to the other senses. And then he goes, When firmly mindful, one sees a form. One is not inflamed by lust for forms. One experiences it with a dispassionate mind and does not remain holding it tightly. One fares mindfully in such a way that even as one sees the form and while one undergoes a feeling, suffering is exhausted, not built up, for one dismantling suffering thus. Nibbana is said to be close by. I like that kind of language, mindfulness muddled. Seeing a form with mindfulness muddled, that distortion, that's not in the scene is only the scene. Bound up with our passions and our dislikes, confused and emotionally responding, suffering follows. But seeing without that distorted mind, Just seeing, just hearing, just recognizing and feeling and knowing, and maybe also knowing an emotional response. This begins to unwind our being hooked to our habits and patterns and moves us towards freedom. So let's sit together for a moment.
Thank you for listening to the Dharma.